Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. You're probably uh, wondering what in the world kind of name is Bing and trying to guess my background because I can be anything from um, Hawaiian to Italian to, I did an American Indian camp one time and I tried to get them to address guess my tribe over the weekend. And, and they, they never questioned that I was anything but American Indian. My grandfather came over from China uh, in the 1800s to work on the railroads. He worked himself across the country. We don't know a lot about the history there because he went back to China and I never met him. His name was, Char- His name was um, Chan Bing. And of course they put the family name first, Chan Bing. They called him Mr. Bing. He took an American name Charlie, so he was Charlie Chan Bing, and so I'm Charlie Chan Bing. But that's how I have a Chinese name that's not really a Chinese name. And uh, he met my grandmother in Washington, D.C., who was uh, sold over by her family, uh, by some poor Chinese, as they often even do today, sell their the girls, and uh, she was sold over to a rich American Chinese man, and he got pregnant at the age of 13 and ran away from him. And I think her second child was my father. So my father was born in Washington, D.C., and that's where I grew up in the D.C. area of, <clears throat> of Maryland, my wife and I both, and um, met my wife in 1977. We married in 79. We celebrate our 25th anniversary this January, and we have four children, um, three girls, and then we had a boy, and their ages are 19, 17, 15, and 13. And my wife was uh, planning to be with us uh, this weekend, and right up to the last minute, you know, we were, we were wondering, well, can we do this? Can the kids, are they old enough finally to be on their own? And you parents know how that is. When is a kid not a kid anymore? Sometimes your teenagers, they want to be adults and, oh, we can handle everything. And then all of a sudden they do some boneheaded thing and you, say, <laughs> and, uh, you start saying, no, they're not ready yet. Well, we reached the conclusion, no, maybe not this time. We had actually even bought our tickets. So uh, that's how close we were, but maybe, maybe next time, for sure next time, because they're not getting younger, they're getting older. So that was a big regret, and you would have loved to meet Karen. Um, let's see a little bit more about me. I became a, I grew up in a uh, denominational church, <clears throat> going to Sunday school pretty regularly, and uh, just because that was the religion of my mother, and my father really was uh, didn't have any religion at all, and um, learned some basic truths there about the Bible. But it was a pretty liberal denomination, so nothing really caught or stuck. When I was confirmed in that denomination at the age of 12, um, I told my, my parents, I said, look, I'll get confirmed, and then I don't want you to make me go to church anymore, and so I didn't, and stayed away from church during my teenage years, and did a lot of the wild things that teenagers do, and um, after a close friend of mine died, uh, an untimely death at the age of 18, I began to think about what life, my life was like, and where it was headed, and so I said, I, I need to just clean up my act, or I'm going to end up the same way, so... Uh, I got a job, a serious job, and there was someone on that job who told me about the Lord, and it caused me to take the Bible and open it and read it uh, seriously for the first time in the summer of 1973. I can't tell you a day or a moment, but I know it was the summer of 1973 where the Lord broke through, and I was convinced that um, that I was believing in Him for eternal life, and my life has never been the same. And about 1975, I went to Washington Bible College and graduated from there, <clears throat> just with this enormous hunger, just to study the Bible, no intention of being a minister or preacher. The last thing I wanted to be was a pastor, in fact. And um, then graduated from there and 
I said, boy, I still have all these questions and things I want to study, and all the textbooks they used, it seemed at my college, were written, a lot of them were written by guys from Dallas Theological Seminary, so why don't I go get it from the horse's mouth, so to speak, and went down to Dallas Theological Seminary in 1980, and um, stayed in school there for 11 years, and getting two, two more degrees, and in the meantime, I'm working in the church as a youth pastor and an assistant pastor, and then there was a need in the neighboring community for uh, more Bible teaching, and we got together as a Bible study with four or five families, and they decided that uh, the Lord was calling us to start a church, so without knowing anything about churches, I started Burleson Bible Church in 1986, 17 years ago this week, and, uh, and we have about 50 families now, which which makes us a big church in some parts of the country, but a small church probably in our culture. And we've never had really had a building of our own, but we're two months away from getting in our big new multi-purpose, big to us, new multi-purpose building, which will allow us a lot more opportunities for ministry. So we're really excited about that. And that keeps me kind of busy. And then, um, so being full-time pastor there for 17 years, and then six years, I've always been involved in, in uh, oh, I, for lack of a better word, I'll just call it a movement that has, has, has kind of sprung up um, maybe about uh, about 17 or 18 years ago. And it's just been a movement in reaction to a lot of unclarity in the churches about what the gospel is. And so some colleagues and I began to put things together. We got some things rolling. But my, my passion has always been that people understand the gospel and not be confused by it. Because confusing the gospel causes so many... Confusing it at that level of salvation can cause so many problems later in the Christian life. It's like just getting off on the wrong foot. So I've been involved in a lot of this uh, uh, ministry to help clarify the gospel. And, and uh, with, the, with the church's blessing, I started Grace Life Ministries in 1986, six and a half years ago. And the purpose of Grace Life is just to promote materials that help people understand the gospel, what it means to be saved by grace and live by grace, making disciples of grace around the world. And I really have a, do a big heart for missions. And uh, I've never refused a missionary uh, my church, unless, of course, they didn't believe similarly, but that's very rare. And, um, and with the church's blessing, then I'm able to you know, do things like this and get out and speak and, and publish some things. It was easier to set something up apart from the church than through the church to accomplish these things. If you know how church boards and committees work and church finances are, it's just much easier to set something up separately. So that's, uh, that's Grace Life. So what we're going to do for the next few days is talk about some basic gospel issues and um, just start from scratch almost and, and see what we find. And if it generates questions along the ways, we'll try to save a little time near the end for that. I don't know how much time that will be because I've wasted or spent a lot of time here on the introduction. Okay, So maybe you know me a little bit better. <clears throat> Let's have a word of prayer and we'll talk about the gospel from God and we'll be in a couple passages, Galatians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 15 will be our main passages and maybe refer to a few others along the way. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the opportunity to get together and remind us of the truths uh, that have brought us here and uh, will see us home. How precious the gospel of God is. We pray, Father, for uh, illumination to understand it clearly. We pray that you would, uh, by your Spirit, teach and remind and apply the truths before us. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> One of my professors in seminary in the class called soteriology, which is the study of salvation, 
Um, you might have heard of him, Charles Ryrie is his name. Uh, he, uh, he asked us a question one day in class. He said, when you get to heaven, will there be more people than you thought? Or will there be less people than you thought? Now think about that. It's a question that kind of has, a, a, it's like a double-edged sword. Because if you think, well, when I get to heaven, there's going to be more people than I thought. That means, well, maybe I'm sharing a gospel with people that is too hard or confused, and there are more people getting saved than I thought would. If there's less people than I thought, maybe I'm sharing a gospel that's too easy, too cheap, and perhaps people are calling themselves Christians who really shouldn't be. I still don't know how I would answer that question <laughs> when, it, when you think of the Christian population at large. But it does address what we want to talk about. And how do we share the gospel? What do we say? Do we say too much? Do we say too little? Do we make it too hard? Do we make it too easy? Those kinds of things. We want to take a biblical look at that. Sometimes when we share the gospel with people, we, we probably tend to share too little. Sometimes we tend to overwhelm them with things they really don't have to know. Um, but there, I think you would agree with me that there is one gospel, just as there is one God. He has one gospel, one communication to us. We live in a day and age where it's very popular, politically correct, to say that all roads lead to Rome and there's many paths to heaven as long as you're sincere, as long as you believe. Uh, you know, your God is your God, my God is my God. We know that that's not the way the Bible presents God or his gospel. God tends to be very narrow about his truth. Jesus said, I am the way the tr and the truth. And uh, he didn't leave other options out. Now, when Paul <clears throat> wrote to the Galatians, he wrote to a group that was in danger of, uh, he said, straying from the gospel. And there were those who had come in behind him wanting to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it really alarmed him. He uses some of his most emotional language ever in Galatians chapter 1 as he says to them, for example, verse 6, I marvel that you are so soon turning away from those, from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Paul just couldn't believe that they were so soon, but the Galatians were known for their fickleness in that part of the country. And uh, so culturally, they might have been a little bit prone to it, but Paul still couldn't believe. He thought he had settled that issue with them. You notice that his gospel was rooted in grace, verse 6 says. And he says, the, the, the grace of Christ, who called you in the grace of Christ. Grace is a big word to Paul. It's a big word to me. It really means everything to me because grace is the first principle of the gospel and really the first principle of the Christian life as well. To a different gospel. He doesn't say what that different gospel is. Later we begin to see and, and, and deduct from what he's teaching them that it had to do with legalism and works and going back under the law and things like that. But he says it's not really another gospel. And there are those who tr are troubling you. They want to pervert, twist, change the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will forever be those people uh, who will do that. And uh, some will do it intentionally, and some will do it, frankly, innocently, I believe. Not knowing, just parroting perhaps phrases and words and presentations that, other, that they have picked up somewhere along the way or somebody has uh, marketed to them or produced. And not really thinking through what it might mean, but it's probably more confusing than it is helpful. But Paul goes on to say, and I'm just going to paraphrase 
8 and 9, he goes on to say, look, if, if I come to you with another message, if I, even an angel from heaven comes to you with another message, let him be accursed, anathema, under God's curse. That's how serious it was to Paul, that somebody would be deserving of a curse. Then he backs up a step to defend his gospel that he brought to them, and that's where we want to really pick it up, verse 11, and just look at verses 11 and 12. He says, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to men. I make known to you, brethren. It seems that Paul, with those words, is emphasizing, let me make this clear to you. Let me say this clearly to you. I want to make it known to you. The gospel that I preach to you is not according to men. It doesn't originate with men. It's not spoken to please men. That's what he says in verse 10. He says, I'm not seeking to please men, just God. And then, where did he get it from? Verse 12, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He didn't get it from men. Now, if you go back in Acts and look at Paul's conversion account in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, you remember he's converted, and he gets a commission from, uh, from God through Ananias, and he receives his sight, and Ananias tells him he's going to be an apostle to the Gentiles, God's tool among the Gentiles, and so forth. And then Paul says uh, he did not, in, in, here in um, verse 16, he didn't immediately run to the apostles and say, okay, teach me your gospel. In fact, he says, to re, uh, we might need to back up so we're not in the middle of a sentence, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, there's that word again, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, humans, I'm using the New King James and NIV may say people are human. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem, that's where the leaders were, the elders, the apostles, to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia. He got isolated and returned again to Damascus. Not much Bible teaching in Arabia. Probably just as much today as there was back then. Paul went to Arabia. He was instructed by God, or perhaps it was Jesus Christ at the initial revelation, but Paul is saying that Look, the message I have didn't come, I didn't, wasn't in Jesus' presence. I wasn't with the apostles. I got it by a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. This gospel I preach is from God. He was able to boast that. You notice how he also equates the, the gospel message with the person of Jesus Christ. It was Jesus revealed in him, and I preached him among the Gentiles. And so it's inseparable. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, and the God who sent them both are inseparable. They are one message. One person. And Paul saying, I got that from God. It did not originate in any way from human beings. So what is this gospel? He doesn't really declare it proposition by proposition here. He defends it <clears throat> against the legalism that was in Galatia. But in another place, and that's where I want to look at is 1 Corinthians 15, another place, he does actually state the propositions, the content of this gospel, and the condition of the gospel as well. Let's look at the content first, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the opening verses. <clears throat> now his main argument in 1 Corinthians 15 is not to declare the gospel that saves us, it's to defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of believers. But the way he's getting there is by saying that the resurrection is important and true because it's essential to the gospel, and here's the gospel, and he shows how the gospel rests on two great pillars of truth. Let's look at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you 
the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. They received it as true, and now they're standing in that truth, by which also you are saved. I preached it, you received it, you're saved by it. If you hold fast, or since you hold fast the word which I preached to you, because you're depending upon that gospel that you heard, unless you believed in vain. A person can believe the wrong thing, and then they've believed in vain. It's empty, because they believed in the wrong thing. But what is that that he preached to them that saved them because they believed it? Verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Here is the first great proposition of the Gospel. Christ died for our sins. Now, it really does say a lot. And Paul is probably assuming that these people knew something because the church in Corinth was made of both Jews and Gentiles. But the, the idea of the word Christ, of course, in the Greek language means anointed one, and that would have spoken of someone who was sent to do a special task and anointed by someone. So even this phrase, um, Christ died for our sins, points to a God. It also points to our problem, that we have a sin problem, and uh, that Christ did something to take care of that sin problem. He died. He died for our sins. He died in our place. The word for there means um, uh, with a view to taking care of our sins, for the purpose of taking care of our sins. We call this in theology the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement or the vicarious suffering of Christ. In other words, he died in our place, and because he died for our sins, we don't have to. We can live. We who were doomed to death because of our sins can now live because one died and paid the price of God's justice in our place. Some years ago, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a, an American boy named Michael Fay, 18-year-old from Ohio, living in Singapore. And in Singapore, he got into a little vandalism and stole something, and they arrested him, and he confessed to the authorities, and he was sentenced to six lashes with a rattan cane on his backside. And, of course, Americans were all talking about this because we don't understand Eastern justice, perhaps, or perhaps Muslim justice, and uh, it was a big topic of conversation. Well, there was a high school coach in Harlingen, Texas, way down on the tip of Texas, football coach. He was an ex-Marine. He says, I have a high tolerance for pain. He wrote the Singapore officials, and he wrote the White House, and he offered to be lashed for Michael Fay in his place. His only condition was that Michael look on and watch him. And the little quote he has here says, I, I can assure you, the coach said, I can assure you that justice will be served when he has to watch another person punished for his crime. Now, of course, if uh, his name was Daniel Vogel, if Daniel Vogel is punished for Michael Fay's crime, then Michael Fay doesn't have to be. He can go free without being punished. So we can say that Daniel was a substitute for Michael, and he satisfied justice on Michael's behalf. It never happened, and I frankly don't know if Michael Favor got lashed. I think he was probably pardoned. Oh, he got lashed. Good for him. That's great. That's my feelings about things. But that's what we call the substitutionary atonement. Someone takes our place, and that's exactly what Jesus did. And it had to be Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, because he was the only one that could do it. He was the eternal 
son of God. He was God the Son. And if he was just another human being, he could not, his sacrifice would not have sufficed for you and me 2,000 years later or for the billions that have been born into the world. So he had to be the eternal Son of God. He had to be 100% man so he could die, but he had to be 100% God so that his sacrifice would cover and pay the price for me and you today and many who will follow, should the Lord tarry. So he died for our sins in a substitutionary death. And, the, and then <clears throat> Paul backs that up with two arguments. First of all, he says, according to the scriptures. This would highly appeal to those in the congregation of Corinth who were fastidious, as we all should be, Berean in our mindset, who want to examine the things he said according to the scriptures. And when they did that, of course, Paul had to be referring to the Old Testament scriptures. That's all they had at the time. They would have thought of passages like what that spoke of Christ's death for our sins. First one that comes to mind, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant there. Are we like sheep have gone astray? We've turned to each, each turned our own way, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Other passages in the Old Testament that speak of the suffering of the Messiah? I'm sure they're part of your Emmaus Road presentation. So. Psalm 22. The whole, you have a lot of pictures, don't you? You have the pictures of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, goat. Um, the tabernacle has illustrations. and We can find the sacrificial death of Christ for our sins throughout the Old Testament. So Paul is, is happy to say, according to the scriptures, check it out for yourself. But the second line of proof, he says, is empirical evidence, physical evidence. And it says he was buried. He was buried. That's like signing the death certificate for Jesus. And there were those who saw him buried. There were those who saw him dead on the cross and refused to break his legs because they knew he was dead. And the fact that he was buried means that he was a dead man. He was as dead as could be. You don't bury live people. And he, he, was at the, he quickly went through the embalming process wrapped with spices and cloth because the sundown was coming and the Sabbath was going to begin. He was dead as could be. And Paul certifies that with this statement, that he was buried. But then the second great proposition of the gospel, when we talk about its content in verse 4, is that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And here's where he really wants to get into his point of the resurrection and how important it is. Jesus rose again from the dead. The second great proposition to the gospel. The reason for that is very simple. Because a dead Savior can't save anybody. Right? So the resurrection, you see, has to be a part of our gospel, and it is the cornerstone of Christianity. Oftentimes, our gospel, when we share it with people, is, you know, Christ died for your sins. We forget to say, and he rose again, so that he can give you eternal life. A dead Savior can't give you anything. Just a couple months ago, there were some college students who went swimming in a nearby lake, and one of them went out a little too far, where it dropped off, couldn't swim very well, began to flounder around, and his friend jumped in the water. And in trying to save him, as often does in drowning victims, he too was dragged under, and they both drowned. And he didn't save his friend because he died, because a dead Savior can't save anyone. And so you see the resurrection is essential and crucial to who we are as Christians and to what we share in the gospel message. So Paul uses as proof, then, <clears throat> two things. First, he says, again, according to the Scriptures. Now, this is a little trickier. Where's the resurrection that he's referring to in the Old Testament? 
We can give you a second to think about that. He says according to the scriptures, so he was saying it's right there in the Old Testament. Is it Psalm one Psalm one ten or Psalm sixteen? He will not suffer your holy one to see corruption. Yes, that's right. That's I think speaks of the resurrection. How about Job? Job nineteen. I know that my redeemer lives. Uh, will stand again in the last days. Isaiah fifty three. It talks about the suffering servant, but then it says, uh, and he will see the light of life and he will justify many. So the suffering servant who dies is going to live again and justify many. It is there. It's not as, not as evident as his sacrificial death, but his resurrection is in the Old Testament. And Paul points to people there when he says, according to the scriptures. So two great propositions to the gospel. Christ died for our sins and he rose again. And those are both proved by scriptural predictions, and they're both proved by the empirical evidence. Quite a strong argument for the content of the gospel. Now, there's a lot of implications that come from that. That there's a God, that we've broken his justice, that we're sinners, we all need to be saved, we can't save ourselves. A lot of things that Paul was probably assuming, or he had taught them already in his teaching. But that's the uh, real core for the gospel message. It's the person of Jesus Christ. It rests in who he is, because it couldn't have been accomplished by anybody but God the Son, and then what he did, he did the work that we couldn't do, and he did it in our place. So that's the content of the gospel. What's the condition for the gospel? Well, that we already mentioned in verses 1 and 2. He talked about this is what you believed. Um, this is what you received. And when he uses the word received, I think he's talking about receiving something as true which is probably a good definition for what it means to believe, to accept something as true, to be persuaded that something is true. But it's in the condition of the gospel, I think, that many times Christians get confused and a little bit off track. Usually all Christians will agree on the content of the gospel. The Son of God came, he died for our sins, he rose again from the dead. The rub is, is so what must I do to be saved? Or how then can I receive the gift of eternal life? And so we have problems here, and that's the kind of problem that Paul ran up against in Galatia. Let me give you uh, like, kind of like four scenarios or uh, four different ways that the gospel is sometimes shared. Of course, when it's shared in some of these ways, it really becomes no gospel at all. It's not very good news at all. The first would, would be that uh, you must do all the work. And this is what would be taught by all the major religions of the world, the cults of the world. It all depends on what you can do and how well you can follow the, the creed, uh, the practices, the beliefs, deny yourself, keep the five pillars. Uh, it, it depends on what you can do. Obey the law is what the Pharisees would have said you need to do. And so this was an idea that Paul was constantly coming up against. Um, Keep the Ten Commandments you might hear today. Follow the Sermon on the Mount. Follow the Golden Rule. Do the best you can. might fit in that category. We could maybe illustrate this by um, this whole idea of taking an airplane. I, I flew from Dallas-Fort Worth to Denver to Spokane. But let's say that I, I got in Dallas and I bought my ticket with United Airlines. And they said, well, here's your ticket. Now, we're going to be taking off at, at um, forget what time we take, 9 o'clock. 
And I want you to watch carefully with the plane because you're going to have to follow it. You got to run fast. But we'll set a good example and we'll show you the direction. Well, that's basically what the religions of the world are doing. Here's the direction, work hard towards that direction. And you know what? That's what a lot of even so-called Christians are doing. You ever heard somebody, Jesus just died to be a model for us, an example for us, show us how to live a good life? Kind of falls in that category. It all depends on what you can do. So in that category, um, the condition for salvation does not really have anything to do with believing. It's just works alone, works by themselves. And we're to do everything. Christ, really, what he did was just only to model love for us or a good life for us. But, you know, when you really think about it, there's a lot of others that could have done that too. Just model a good life. And works become essential to salvation. The second example would be of those who say that Christ did some of the work, but we have to do some of the work. And really, this is where I think you get into the Galatian problem. Because these people had believed, and Paul was saying, but you're turning aside from that, and you want to go back under the law. And having begun by faith, are you going to be made perfect by the, by the law? Having begun by the Spirit, are you going to be made perfect by the, the law? Of course not. They were wanting to start by believing in Jesus, but then go on and work their way to heaven. There are many groups today, and many Christians today, that kind of mix works and faith together. And they will tell you, you know, to be saved, you need to believe in Jesus. But there's things you also need to do. I remember taking my, we were looking for a school to put our children in, and we went to this group that was kind of, their reputation sometimes is Christian and sometimes it's not. And, and uh, we, we went to them, but they had a good school in the area. And I asked the principal, I said, well, how do you teach that somebody gets to heaven? And she said, well, it's not just by believing it. That's what you're getting at. Because they believe that you have to worship a certain way on a certain day and eat certain things. And there's a lot in their system. We had, um, this, this is kind of funny, but about a month ago, I was having an elder meeting in uh, one of the living rooms of one of the fellas. And uh, us three were sitting there. Our elder meetings are very informal. We just get together, we pray. We have another board meeting that's separate, but we just get together and pray and talk about spiritual issues and things. And frankly, I was there in my flip-flops and my shorts, and I had a muscle shirt because I had been mowing the lawn. And, uh, you know, time for the meeting. I run over to the meeting. And uh, that's how we dress in Texas sometimes. To beat the heat, you get real casual. And it's nothing with these guys. We're all good friends. So We're, we're having this elder meeting. There's a knock on the door. And so Tom gets up to answer his door. And... Uh, there's two neatly dressed gentlemen in black pants and white shirt and black tie holding their literature under their arms. Hello, I'm Elder Matthew, and I'm Elder Nathan, and we were wondering if we could come in and talk to you for a while. And I yelled to Tom, I said, Tom, ask him in. <laughs> so they came into the midst of our elder meeting, and we introduced ourselves. I'm Elder Charlie, and this is Elder <laughs> Tom. And of course, we had a little more elder than they did. They were about 19. So they sat down in the living room, you know, and they, and they kind of guessed what was going on. I said, you having a meeting? And, yeah, yeah, church meeting. We kind of tried to be nebulous because, frankly, with the Mormons, I found that if you tell them a little too much or who you are, they'll kind of sometimes run the other way. So I didn't tell them I was a preacher. 
Later on, they began to say, I bet you wanted Jesus a preacher. <laughs> I said, yes, that's true. And I still didn't say who I was. And they were trying to guess the whole time. They didn't guess it was the one in the flip-flops and the shorts and the muscle shirt. So we began to talk to them. And uh, basically, this approach I take to every cult is, is who is Jesus? And they, oh, he's the Son of God. So you're saying you do believe that Jesus is God the Son? And they look at me puzzled. They never thought about it that way. And when you really pressed them that you believe is Jesus is the God, finally got them to admit after a while, no. See what just changing the order of those words does? Mm -hmm. Son of God, he's the Son of God. God the Son? So I always refer to him as God the Son. Second thing is, what do I have to do to get to heaven? They said three things. Believe in Jesus as your Savior. Be baptized. And I forget the third, but it was do some kind of works. And I said, do you all know you're going to heaven? Oh, yeah. How do you know? Well, because we believe Jesus, we've been baptized, we have the testimony of the Holy Spirit, and, and they didn't say anything about it. But didn't you say you had to do works? Yeah, well, we're, we have to be faithful and do what God wants us to do. Well, how do you know when you've done enough? See, my goal is just to plant doubt in their mind, not to convert them on the spot. How do you know when you've done enough? I mean, you could knock on one more door tonight before you go home. Well, when we don't do enough, then the grace of Jesus covers I said, well, if the grace of Jesus covers your shortcomings, why can't he just cover all of your salvation? <laughs> you know? What's the matter? Is it defective? Is it not enough? They didn't really have an answer for that. At the, at the end of the night, I've gone back and forth and talking to them about the role of works and so forth. I said to them, you know, there's really only two religions in the world. There's the religion of do, and there's the religion of done. And the religion of done says says that Jesus Christ did everything necessary for my salvation. He died for my sins, and, and the definition of grace means he gives us eternal life as a free gift, simply if I receive it freely, which is what faith is. And I can't do anything but receive it. The religion of do says I have to do something to earn my salvation. And it depends on my efforts. And I said, where are you? And he said, well, we're both together. Wait a minute. No, if, if, it's, if it's done, it's done. If you have to do something, you have to do something. You can't be done and you have to still do something. So we went round and round. They danced around a little bit after that. And finally, it's so funny, what the, the leading elder at the end of the night, he said, look, okay, we have to work for our salvation. That's what he said. I, I finally got into the He just exasperated. He said, okay, we have to work for our We have to earn it. But I know this, he said, I know Jesus better than you all do. And with that, they left. It was sad, but we, it was good. We, it was good. I think we planted some seeds of doubt, which is all we wanted to do that night. They try to mix works with what God has done for, and that doesn't work. You can't mix works and faith together. And many Christians do that in different ways. No, it's not just believe. You have to do the best that you can. There's a third scenario. Oh, oh, oh let's compare this to flying. This would be, well, I get the ticket in Dallas, and then they say, well, when we get about over uh, uh, New Mexico, you're going to have to get out and push. Now, if that sounds absurd to you, when you think about what Jesus has done, you begin to see how absurd it is that we can add anything to what he's done. The third scenario would be that Jesus did most of the work, uh, and you must believe and accept it, but you need to validate your salvation through your own works. And this is not so much saying that you need to do works to be saved, but you need to prove your salvation by your works. 
And so instead of coming in the front door as a, as a commitment to do works, it's through the back door as proving your salvation by your works. This is a little more subtle, um, but it's kind of like saying, well, you get on your jet plane in Dallas, but when you get to Denver, we're going we're gonna to check you to make sure your arms are tired from flapping and that you have a, if you've broken a good sweat. Because if you didn't, you're not legitimate. You didn't contribute. You didn't work. You didn't prove yourself. Now, it may surprise you, but this would be the view of uh, many of the Puritans that we quote so often, but we sometimes don't really study out their theology. And yet many people are quoting them and modeling their ministries and their personal lives after the Puritans, and they had a lot of good things to say. I don't want to take that from them. But the Pur Puritans called what they had what they called hopeful conversion. They, they really didn't like to call somebody Christian because you really couldn't know till the end of life that they were. They're only Christians if they stay faithful and die in faith. In other words, they persevered in good works to the very end. And so if someone commits suicide, not a Christian. Impossible, because they died in sin, proving they're not a Christian. So it's a little more subtle. Instead of in the front, they put the, the works at the back end. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of sad because a prominent, in fact, it was uh, James Montgomery Boyce, a 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, a very prominent preacher. I've benefited much from a lot of his Bible teaching and books. But he, he's very uh, uh, Reformed Presbyterian, uh, just by his uh, ministry and heritage. And he died a couple years ago. I think it was of cancer. And when they, I heard a friend that was at a conference when they announced his death. And when they announced his death, they say, well, we hope that he died in faith. What they were saying is that we're not 100% sure that, that this great man of God, we're not 100% sure he was a believer because we don't know really if he died in faith. That's kind of sad to me. And where that really leaves us is just as bankrupt as the other systems, because if it still depends on my works, even though it's in a roundabout way, then I really don't know for sure I'm saved. Because even though I've been faithful here for however long I've been a Christian, which is now 30 years, even though I'm faithful, you don't know that I might slip away tomorrow and fall away from the Lord. You see? So you just hope that I'm a Christian, and you hope you invite the right person to speak to you today. But you really can't prove that until I die, and you see if I die in faith. So. There, there's that version of it out there. Faith that saves will work. And often that is put as an upfront commitment to do good works in the gospel because the thinking is if you commit yourself to do good works, you'll persevere in those good works. We'll talk more about those ideas later. The second, or the fourth, the last um, version of this would be simply that Christ did all the work and all we need to do is believe. And isn't that what it seems Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15? That it has all been done for us, and I've told you that message, and you've just received it. You believed it. You accepted it as true, and there's nothing else you can do. Well, that's kind of like uh, getting on the plane in Dallas, trusting the plane to get you to Denver, and relaxing and enjoying the trip and saying thank you on the way out. It's all been done for me. There's nothing I could do to contribute to that. That means that salvation is by grace, a free gift. It's received through faith, accepting it as true. It's in Jesus Christ alone. It 
has nothing to do with my works. Now, that leaves us with the whole question of works, which I think I'll address from Ephesians. Uh, but works are not a requirement of salvation. They should be a result of salvation. They're not a condition for salvation, but they should be a consequence of salvation. But we want to be careful not to get the cart for the horse. Works are very important in the Christian life. We'll talk about that later. But when it comes to salvation, there's nothing we can contribute to it. So, some applications for us. Well, first of all, we don't want to say too little to people when we share the gospel with them. Paul didn't, when he explained his gospel, he just didn't say, God loves you. He didn't say too little. He didn't say, well, you're a sinner. He didn't say, um, you know, just believe. Some people say, believe what? We don't want to say too little. And, you know, frankly, I, I get so disturbed when I hear sometimes well-known prominent evangelists get up in front of crowds of thousands that people have poured money for this event to happen and churches have cooperated for this to happen. And I listen, I listen intently to discern what is the message that they're giving people to believe. And all I'm hearing is emotional stories and people respond by emotion at the end of the day and, and come forward and they really don't have any meat to sink their teeth into. Yeah. I could go on with an example of that that I saw recently. Don't say too little, but don't say too much. I'll qualify with that, that in our culture and in our day and age and in many parts of the world, you have to say a lot more than we're often trained to do years ago in sharing something like the four spiritual laws or a simple gospel track. And that, I understand that's what Good Seed is all about. But then on the other hand, we don't have to share everything. I don't think a person has to understand everything in the book of Leviticus to be saved. I don't think a person has to understand how Christ relates to Melchizedek in order to benefit from Christ's eternal priesthood. I don't think a person has to understand the Abrahamic covenant to be a son of Abraham. And thank God, because I don't understand a lot of these things in the Bible. They don't have to take theology 101 to be a Christian. The gospel is, after all, when we understand it, simple enough even for a child to believe. And so we don't have to share everything and share too much, which is often the temptation. But we, I'm finding myself having to back up more and more and more because people are becoming so secular in their thinking and, and uh, biblically Ill illiterate. I mean, there's not much difference now when I go to Africa and talk to people there. I remember last, not the last time I was there, but one, one of the times I was there, we were just on the beach, uh, enjoying the beach with some other missionaries, and uh, some young men came up to us and we said, we heard that you're Christian preachers. Talk to us about Jesus. And they, they acted like they didn't know anything in this small village. And so I said, well, in the beginning, God created them. I had to start in the whole beginning. But I wasn't going to just start with, you know, Jesus loves you and died for you. I had to explain the whole context for that. And we're having to do that more and more. And then third, uh, let's not try to improve the gospel. There's always a temptation to make it sound better or more clever. And to use the phrases that, that preach well. But my friends, I don't want to be under that curse in Galatians chapter 1. Let's be careful not to try to improve the gospel. Paul came to Rome and he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. It is the power of God unto salvation. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith to those who believe. Paul wasn't ashamed of it because he realized 
It was the only way that people could understand salvation. And the simple gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness to those who perish, but to us who are being saved, it's the wisdom of God. It just makes sense to me that, that God who loves us and wants us to be saved would not make something complicated or difficult or something that depended on our efforts, doesn't it? If he wants the people that he loves around this world to be saved, then he would make it simple enough for even Charlie Bing to understand. And he would do it in such a way that I could easily accept it and become part of his family. That's what God is all about. And when people understand that, it just liberates them. I was teaching a, a class, uh, the Bible, pretty secular class uh, of adults, the Bible, and got to Romans. I had, did an assignment in Romans chapter 3 and 4. I asked them, using Romans 3 and 4, explain to a friend how they can get to heaven, how they can have eternal life. I used the word justified because we understood what that meant. We had been <laughs> teaching on that. And uh, the, the lady, can, of course, says that it's freely by his grace in Romans 3 and 4. And she came back to class. She says, is, is this really what I, what I understand, that uh, salvation is a free gift? And I've been here all my life. I had to do something. This is just so liberating. And she went on and on and on. And I was just rejoicing with her about that. So it's a very liberating thing. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.